Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16? Now, the uh, background is that Jesus, uh, it's gotten a little hot in Jerusalem, too hot for him to be in town. So he has kind of moved up north. He spent some time up in uh, Tyre and Sidon, modern Lebanon. And now they've moved down, uh, skirting the Sea of Galilee, staying away from the major population centers around the sea, uh, kind of on the outskirts. And there he taught a crowd for three days. And they were hungry, and so with seven loaves, uh, he multiplied the loaves and fed them, as he had done with the 5,000 sometime before that. So after he feeds these folks, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come, and they try to trap him. We studied some of that in uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. Then it says in verse 5, Now, when his disciples had come to the other side, he told them to get into a boat and go, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It's because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up. How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I get the impression the Lord is getting just a little exasperated with these guys. All right. I mean, you know, we're about six months away from the cross at this point. Three years he's been with them, all right? Now, we understand. When they first started following him and all, and he's talking spiritual, and they're thinking physical, and and okay, we get that, all right? But three years into it? Come on, get with the program is what he's saying, guys. I mean, how long have I been with you, and I've used physical things to illustrate spiritual truth, and you keep thinking physically about everything? He zeroes in, though, on this concept of leaven. And, of course, he wants to use the idea of physical leaven to communicate spiritual truth. And so because the Lord zeroes in on leaven, let's take a a minute to kind of focus on, first of all, what is physical leaven? Because we need to understand that if we're going to understand the spiritual application. Physical leaven is basically dough that yeast is permeated through resulting in fermentation and causing the dough to rise. Now, every morning, the women would knead their dough for the day. And what they would do is they would always keep a little piece of the prior day's dough, which was leavened, in a little cloth somewhere. And as they would knead the fresh dough, they would take that little starter piece, as they called it, and work that in and then just set it aside and it would permeate through the entire lump of dough, until the whole thing was leavened. Now, before she used it to bake the bread, she would again take a piece, break it off, and keep it on the side uh, for the next day's batch of dough. And this was a very common uh, practice for them, and everybody he was speaking to understood what that was all about. But um, we know from the Bible that leaven is always a type of evil uh, or sin. 
It's a type of sin because it spreads like sin. It's a type of sin because it corrupts like sin. Uh, fermentation is a form of digestion. And sin is a tendency to eat away the good things in our life. When God commanded his people in Exodus 12, verse 15, to rid their houses of all leaven in preparation for the Passover, they understood what he was talking about. They understood that leaven was analogous of sin and that God was telling them symbolically by purging their homes of leaven that I want your houses to be pure places. I want them to be free of all corruption, especially on this, these feast days because they communicate some very important spiritual truth. And in fact, as you had Passover on the 14th of Nisan, and then on the 15th of Nisan, running for seven consecutive days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God said any Jew who ate leaven, anything that was leavened, a cookie, Twinkie, whatever it might be, during that seven-day period, well, they were to be cut off from their people because God was trying to communicate something very important through the concept of leaven and their lives being free from it. Now, in the pages of the New Testament... Leaven is used spiritually for a number of things that, that can adversely affect not only our walk with God, but also our relationship with one another. And so I'd like to take some time looking at this. And this is why Jesus used such strong language when he said, take heed and beware of leaven. And again, he wasn't talking about physical leaven. He was talking about the spiritual variety, which we'll talk about in just a second. But the word take heed there is a command in the Greek. And the basic meaning of that word is seeing clearly or taking notice of. Beware is a Greek word that means to be in a continuous state of readiness, to pay attention to, to keep on looking out for, to be on one's guard against. And the idea is Jesus is saying, in essence, guys, open your eyes and be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, what is it? Well, in verse 12, we are told the disciples eventually, figured it out, came to understand it to be the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the word doctrine there is a Greek word that means teaching. What were the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus was warning his disciples against? Well, the teaching of each of these groups grew out of what they had each really built their lives upon. What were the most important things to each one of them? Uh, essentially, the Pharisees were the legalists and the Sadducees were materialists. The Pharisees, as legalists taught, that the way to get in good with God, all right, the way to be right with God was through religion. Religious observances, which included keeping rituals, religious ceremonies, feast days, sacrifices, and laws. They believed that God was approached, God was appeased, and God would look favorably upon anybody who kept Judaism down to its smallest detail with all of its ceremonies and rituals and feast days and laws. That was how you got in good with God, we'll say. Got on God's good side, right? Uh, found favor with him. The Sadducees, as materialists taught, that the more you acquired in the way of money and material possessions, the more right with God you were, who only blessed monetarily those with whom he was pleased. That was the idea that drove the Sadducees. They saw wealth as a blessing from God. Therefore, the wealthier a person was, the more material possessions they owned, that was a sign that God was pleased with them, 
And therefore God was blessing them. It made no difference or no matter to these guys that much of their wealth came by ripping other people off. The Sadducees were the guys who were involved in that very lucrative temple business of the, the money changers and the selling of sacrifices, right? Well, you realize, of course, that when people would come to the temple, and sometimes they would come from a long ways away, maybe the first time they'd ever been to the temple, and here they are dragging their little lamb all the way to then offer it to God and so on. But when they got there, the priests were waiting, and the priests would take that little lamb or whatever it was, and they would examine it thoroughly until they found one little spot or blemish, reject it, can't use this, that's defiled, it's got a blemish on it, you know. But we do have some pre-approved kosher sacrifices that we'll be happy to sell you. Of course, they were five times the going rate of an animal out in the street. Plus, they had mandated you couldn't give to God out of your Roman currency. You could only give God temple shekels. And so people that would come to bring an offering to God of money came to the temple, found out you couldn't give God your Roman currency. But we could exchange it. That's what the money tables were there for. We can exchange it for temple shekels. Okay, fine. Problem is they were charging exorbitant exchange rates to exchange these Roman coins into temple shekels. Ripping the people off who had come to worship God. Lining their pockets, getting wealthy by stealing and ripping people off. And yet they had the temerity to praise God that he was blessing them. How deceived you can be sometimes. In fact, today we see these two kind of philosophies of way, or ways of thinking uh, in different religious organizations, ministries, and so on. We see those groups, those denominations and whatever, who believe that the way to get in good with God, the way to please God, the way to gain favor with God is to go to church, keep all the rituals and ceremonies of your religious group, whatever that might be, because God is appeased, God is pleased through religious observance. And we have those ministries today that are always pushing the idea that if you have faith, God will bless you financially, which if he is blessing you financially, that's a sign that God is really pleased with you. Because God doesn't bless those who have no faith. God doesn't bless those living in sin. And so, you know what? If God is increasing your wealth, that's because, uh, you know, you're, he's pleased with you in some way. Now, Jesus was warning them and us here in some very strong terms to be careful to stay away from these kinds of teaching. Because they're like leaven, he said. They will corrupt us spiritually, puff us up with pride, and destroy any opportunity that we may have to have a meaningful relationship with God. You don't approach God through laws and rules and ceremonies and so on. And just because a person is gaining a lot of wealth doesn't mean God is blessing them necessarily. So a lot of rip-off artists that if we applied that logic to their life, we would think God was blessing them when all they are is crooks. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out these things had a lot of flaws inherent in them. And Jesus was just basically saying, look, stay away from the thinking, the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes. They're going to mess you up. They're going to destroy your walk with me. But there were other forms of spiritual leaven the New Testament warns us against. In fact, I see another one come through right in this uh, chapter. In verse 1 of chapter 16, we read, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, let me put it this way, trying to trap him is the idea, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. You're really the Messiah? Show us a sign from heaven. 
they weren't really looking. It wasn't an honest request. It was simply another way to try to trap him. So in other words, it was hypocrisy. That is a form of spiritual leaven. In fact, in Luke 12, verse 1, Jesus even says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And here I just believe he expands it to include the Sadducees as well. This was something these guys walked in all the time. Hypocrisy. The word hypocrite comes from a Greek word that literally means mask wearer. and was used of an actor back then on stage playing a part. You've seen some of these old these movies that portray some of this, uh, this old-time acting, how they would actually have a mask on a stick, and they would come onto stage and they would put the mask up to their face and play a part, right? Well, of course, what was used back then to denote an actor playing a part actually became a broadened term and uh, was applied to anyone who was putting on an act and pretending to be something that they weren't, hypocrite. And this could apply to a lot of things. But spiritually... Let me give you another example. In Matthew 6, Jesus warned his disciples not to be hypocrites when they prayed, fasted, and gave money to the poor. Not to make a public spectacle out of it. He said in those verses, look, you've seen the Pharisees. They're the classic example of hypocrisy in the way they give, fast, and pray. They pray on the street corners, the busiest street corners. Long prayers, so that people walk by and go, wow, what a godly person, you know? When they fast, they rub ashes on their face to make them look pale, okay? Uh, they walk around with this painful expression on their face. Everyone knows they're fasting, so that people go, ooh, ah, how spiritual. Boy, that guy's fat. Look at his face, all white and pale. He must have been fasting for a long time. That was the idea, you know? Given money to the poor. They never just quietly gave money to the poor. They would, you know, make a public scene. Jesus says, look, that's how they do it. That's hypocrisy. They do it to be seen by men. When you fast and pray and give, do it quietly. In fact, don't even let your right hand, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. But the idea is, you know, don't do it to be seen by people. In fact, in Matthew 6, verse 1, when he said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. The Greek word for seen is a word we get the English word theater and theatrical from. So it was really an act. Jesus used the absolute correct word when he called the Pharisees and all hypocrites. They were really on stage playing a part to get the praise of men. Now, why did the Lord liken hypocrisy to leaven? Well, because like leaven, it will spread into other areas of our lives, corrupting our motives, which may have been pure at one time. But once this hypocrisy enters in, it begins to corrupt other areas of our lives and begins to puff us up with pride. How? Well, because as we make people think we're more spiritual than we really are, people want to praise us. And as they praise us, I begin to be puffed up with pride. Yeah, you know what? I am pretty special. See? And that pride will destroy our relationship with God. It will destroy our walk with God. Do you realize that the very first sin that tried to enter the early church was the sin of hypocrisy? You remember the story in Acts 5. The Holy Spirit was really moving in a powerful way, and uh, people were so filled with the love of God for one another. Uh, as people had needs, and, and they were poor back then, uh, most people, and so as people in the church had some needs, maybe somebody couldn't work, they got hurt, no workman's comp, no insurance back then. You couldn't work, you didn't earn money. 
And maybe a family had no income coming in. And because the Spirit of God was moving in the hearts of these people so powerfully, and the love of God was, was filling them so much, people who had surplus properties, well, people were going out and selling their property and taking the money and laying it at the apostles' feet to kind of dole out to help those get over the hump who were maybe hurting at that time. And a lot of people were doing this. It wasn't mandatory, by the way. It was totally an act of free will that people were doing just because they wanted to help their brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, there was a husband and wife. His name, Ananias, her name, Sapphira. And they owned a piece of property. They sold it, but they kept back part of the money for themselves and gave, it was Ananias first, Sapphira wasn't there. They both conspired to do it. But Ananias was the one who actually brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet while Sapphira was, I don't know, getting her nails done or something. She wasn't there at the time, all right? And as soon as Ananias laid the money at the apostles' feet, Peter, filled with the Spirit, knew exactly what he had done. And, and listen carefully to what Peter says so you don't get the wrong impression. Peter says, Ananias, nobody told you that you had to sell your field. And even after you sold it, none of us told you you had to give the, all the money to us. But because you've lied to the Holy Spirit, because you have pretended, you've played a part, you're, you're acting so magnanimous as if you've given all the money when you've kept back part for yourself, because of your hypocrisy, essentially, is what Peter is saying, God is now going to judge you, and boom, he hits the floor dead. Young guys took his body outside, buried it. Three hours later, when his wife came walking in, Peter said, did uh, you and your husband sell that piece of property? Yes. Did you sell it for so much money? She said, yes. Peter says, I can't believe you both have conspired to lie to the Holy Spirit. He said, the feet of those who have carried your husband out are going to carry you out, and she immediately fell to the ground dead. See, that's pretty harsh. Yes, it was. But the church was in its infancy, and Satan wanted to corrupt it right from the get-go. And God kept it pure. God would not allow sin at this point to enter in. The sin of hypocrisy, making people think that we are really more spiritual than we are, that we're more loving than we are, that we're more generous than we are. You say, does God still do that today? Give me a break. If God still treated the church today like he did in those early days, as we have said before, many congregations like to sing that old hymn that has one of the lines in it that goes, uh, Take my silver and my gold, not a mite will I withhold. If, we, if congregations sing that today and God was acting today like he did back then, there would be dead bodies throughout the entire sanctuary. Because people sing that, but they don't really mean that. They don't really intend to give God all. It's hypocrisy. But it's one of those sins that kind of flies under the radar today, isn't it? In fact, it was, I think, G. Campbell Morgan, great man of God, who said, there are acceptable sins in the church of Jesus Christ. What, is, what do you mean? Things that God says are wrong, but you know what? We're so used to them, we don't really think they're wrong anymore. Covetousness is one of those sins. Hypocrisy is another one. Gossip is a big one. You say, well, wait a minute. People know gossip is wrong. Sure they do, but they don't call their gossip gossip. We're smarter than that. What do we call it? I'm just sharing a prayer request. I'm just sharing. If, if you got a problem with that, that you got to get your heart right with God. I'm just sharing a prayer request. Okay? Don't accuse me of gossip. So these are sins that, you know, we've kind of justified. But God still takes them very seriously. Listen, hypocrisy has probably done more damage in the church throughout its history and destroyed our witness to this world more thoroughly than any other sin, which is why, listen, Jesus condemned it so vociferously. 
It was because he saw the danger. It's not just a little thing. We think it's a little thing. But as those women would keep just a small piece of leaven that they would then introduce into a whole bunch of new dough the next day, this kind of sin has a way of permeating through the entire church or a person's life until it's corrupted for God. Now, another kind of spiritual leaven the Word of God warns us against and denounces is legalism. Legalism was something that Paul the Apostle fought his entire ministry, something we still fight against today. Let me read you what Paul said to the Galatians. He says, So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free. And don't get tied up again uh, in slavery to the law. Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, for he is the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is like a little leaven that spreads through the entire batch of dough. And here Paul is likening legalism to leaven, which when introduced into a church or a Christian's life over time will slowly corrupt, listen to me, corrupt them and destroy the fruit of God's grace in their lives. I have seen this. I have seen people who started to attend legalistic churches, and what it did was it completely leavened their walk with God. Years ago, when I first became a pastor, we had a lady in the church whose husband was not saved. He never came, but we prayed for him. And I knew he was uh, into science and evolution, so uh, I had just heard a conference where some Christians who were scientists, not Christian scientists, Christians who were scientists, had done an extensive teaching on evolution and talked about how it's not really rooted in any fact, and they showed all kinds of slides and different things. Well, I got the audio cassettes, and I gave them to his wife to share with him if he was interested. Well, the Holy Spirit used it. He devoured all of them and became a Christian and started out just a real loving, sweet guy. But then they started going to another church in the area where her folks had been going and she kind of wanted to go back and be with them. and Very legalistic church. I lost touch with them for about a year, year and a half. One day, he, uh, and they moved away, but they went, came back for a visit. And uh, they gave me a call. So I invited them over for some coffee. And I got to tell you, I was really taken back by how hard, how black and white, how condemning he was. I mean, there was no grace. There was no love. It was very legalistic, very black and white, very pharisaical, no tenderness. And I thought, you know, this is the legacy, one of the legacies of legalism. It leavens a person's life to the point where it corrupts all the grace that God has given to them. Hey, we get saved by grace, don't we? Unfortunately, so often after we're saved by grace, we want to start walking and working in the flesh. Paul denounced this in Galatians 3 when he said, look, he said, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Christians get saved. The only way you get saved is by God's grace, by receiving his grace as a free gift, putting your faith in Christ and so on. But oftentimes after a person is saved by grace, somewhere along the way, they think now they have to earn God's favor by keeping laws and rules and regulations. 
And as they walk in those things long enough, what it does is it puffs them up. Because let's face it, if you're out there and you're denying yourself all these things and you're not doing these things, going to movies and doing dancing and, and of course you're not smoking or drinking or doing all these other things, you're wearing your hair a certain length, you're making sure your clothes are a certain look to them and all, and you're doing all these things, you know, because you think it makes you right with God and so on, and a lot of other Christians are not really, they're, they're kind of soft on some of that stuff. It makes you feel spiritually superior. And conversely, it will make you begin to look down on others who don't measure up to the standards you have set. I'll tell you what, we see this in Scripture. Turn to Luke 18. Because legalism is just as essentially keeping laws and rules that, in my mind, make me right with God, earn me God's favor, God's blessing. And, of course, it all focuses on self. At the heart of self is pride. And as I begin to get puffed up with my own works, I begin to look down on others who don't measure up. We see this in Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. That's, that's a perfect example of legalism. Okay? He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, you couldn't get two people on farther ends of the spectrum than these two guys. The Pharisees were looked upon as the most holy and righteous guys in Israel. Tax collectors, some of the most evil and corrupt, thieves and so on. These two were in the temple. The Pharisees stood, verse 11, and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm just such a special guy. You know, these other guys are extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I'm not even like this tax collector over there at the back of the room. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. You know, I, 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 it's always about me. Verse 13, And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And of course here, the Lord is talking about salvation. He's talking about how if you really think by keeping laws and ceremonies and rituals that you're going to earn God's favor and get to heaven someday, you're deceiving yourself. Because God only forgives people who are broken, humble, confessing their sins, asking for mercy by receiving Christ. Otherwise, if you think like these Pharisees did, that they were good enough to work their way into heaven, Jesus says you will see no mercy from God. You will not inherit heaven. I'll show you another one in Matthew 13 if you turn there. Another example of spiritual leaven. I just want you to read verse 33 with me. Another parable Jesus spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till all was leavened. We don't have time to develop this in its entirety, but the measures of meal, I believe, speak of the word of God. Because meal was used to make bread. Bread is synonymous with the word of God. And so I believe in this context, this parable... The, the meal represented God's word. The leaven, I believe, that was introduced into it and corrupted it was false doctrine. Why is false doctrine like leaven? Because, first of all, it spreads quickly through a church and corrupts those who are otherwise healthy spiritually with this unhealthy, even poisonous teaching. And secondly, it puffs people up by making them feel they are spiritually superior to everyone else since, listen, only they, and maybe a few others, were spiritual enough to see 
the truth in this doctrine which they have now come to embrace. Folks, I have seen this over the years from time to time where people will come to our church and they hear the teaching of the Bible, but somewhere along the way, a co-worker, a neighbor, a relative gets them hooked into some false doctrine. And instead of coming to maybe the leaders here to ask us about it, they just embrace it. And they leave the church, and here's the reasoning now. You guys are not spiritual enough for, for me. Okay, I can't learn anything from you guys because you're not spiritual enough. Why is that? Because you were not spiritual enough like I was to see the truth in this doctrine. And a lot of Christians are missing it. Only me and my buddies, or us in a little group we got meeting, you know, somewhere. Only us have come to understand this is what the Bible is really teaching. So obviously they feel very spiritually superior, puffed up with pride. Let me just say this to you guys. If you're seeing stuff in the Bible that nobody else is seeing, humble yourself and say, you know what? I don't think I'm seeing what's right. Because God doesn't hide his truth from most of his people. Where only you and a few others now see what everybody else is blind to. That's how every cult under the sun has begun. People seeing things in the Bible nobody else has seen. Oh, do they think they're spiritual though. And they're just deceived. The opposite of false doctrine is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Do you realize that when Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy was a pastor living in Ephesus at the time, and as Paul begins to address his young pastor, the first thing he says, I mean, he doesn't even get, hardly get started in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I mean, two verses, quick, hi, how you doing? Boom, right into what was most important to Paul. Verse 3, I urged you when I went into Macedonia that you remain in Ephesus and that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. What is Paul talking about? Well, first of all, again, doctrine means teaching. What teaching is he referring to? I told you, Timothy to charge those who were teaching other doctrines that they were to not teach anything but the doctrine I gave to you. What was this doctrine or teaching that Paul gave? Well, it was simply called the Apostles' Doctrine. What was it? Well, it was teachings that came from God that the Holy Spirit gave to these apostles, revealed to them, and they then shared with the church. It wasn't didn't originate with them. It was called the Apostles' Doctrine. It wasn't their doctrine, their teaching. It came from the Holy Spirit. It was eventually written down and became our New Testament. But let me say this to you. Paul is saying that sound doctrine, and the Greek words there mean healthy teaching. Healthy teaching from God's word is the lifeblood of the local church. Absolutely. It is absolutely critical to the health of any body of people, any local church body. In fact, it's so critical to the health of the local church that when, as you study the three pastoral epistles written to pastors, Paul wrote two epistles to Timothy, one to Titus. If you study those in the original, in the Greek, you will find that 32 times in those three small epistles, 32 times, he talks about doctrine, teaching, teachers, teachings. He's over and over stressing the importance of teaching from God's word is the only thing that is able to build Christians up and keep them from error. If you continue in my word, Jesus said, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from error. The only antidote to error is truth. That's why Jesus said to Peter, who was going to be one of his shepherds, but to all who are his shepherds, he said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Two out of the three exhortations had to do with feeding Jesus' sheep. 
feeding them on the Word of God, feeding them sound doctrine. And that's what the early church built their ministries on. Acts 2.42, it says, The early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. But Paul goes on to warn that in the last days, the teaching of sound doctrine in the local church would become more and more scarce. Turn to 2 Timothy 4, a passage you're all familiar with, but let's read it again. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Paul says, I charge you therefore, speaking to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And he's not talking about the world. The world has never endured sound doctrine. He's talking about professing Christians in the local church. Can you imagine saying that to Timothy back in the first century when the church was built on sound doctrine? They cherished sound doctrine. They constantly fed on sound doctrine. The word of God was all they needed, all they wanted. For Paul to prophesy to Timothy and say, Timothy, I want you to understand there's coming a day in the church's history when professing Christians are not going to endure any longer sound doctrine. Verse Three, he goes on to say, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Fables are simply teachings that are just, you know, made up, where people don't live happily ever after. Okay? Fairy tales, but bad stuff. Paul said in the last days, people would have this thing where in the church, so-called Christians, I don't think they're all saved, would not want to sit for a, just a solid Bible study. Just last week, I'll give you one example. Um, I know when a person is going to a church that's not teaching verse-by-verse verse serious Bible study. Why do I know that? Because they are fidgeting. It, it's why teachers have hated uh, Sesame Street for so long. Because it's all designed to give the kids little 30-second little sound bites and, and visual things. Because you got to keep moving because you'll lose the kids' attention. And there's a lot of churches that are built around this concept where everything, it's, everything's moving. There's, there's always something going on, something new. Boom, we're doing this. Boom, we got the skit going. Boom, and we got this little video presentation. Boom, some music is playing. And, you know, and, and they're used to that. And they come and they, we open the Word and just start teaching verse by verse. And they are just, they're ready to jump out the window. They're not used, they have not conditioned themselves for serious Bible study. And that's tragic. As I said before, let me say it again. I have never treated you guys like spiritual third graders. I have always tried to not teach down to you, but teach up to you, where you had to stretch a little bit to, to get what we were talking about so you grow. It's just a tragedy today. I mean, today we see many churches that have just shied away from biblical doctrine altogether. In fact, many others are flat out condemning the teaching of doctrine as being counterproductive to the church's real purpose, which they say is to bring about unity. Unity today is the big deal, isn't it? How can you argue with unity, right? I mean, I sound like a heretic just talking against any unity. Because in people's minds today, all unity is good. What do you, what's wrong with you? Talking against unity. Unity is good. We should all come together. Well, Jesus believed in unity. In fact, the night before the cross, John 17, 
he actually prayed, Father, I pray that you would make these disciples one with each other, even as we are one with each other. He went on to say, Father, sanctify them or bring them together in unity by your truth. Your word is truth. Unity was important to our Lord, but only unity based on truth, the truth of God's word. Today, the church is bought into a mentality that says unity at any price, at any cost. The motto in the church seems to be unity at any price. In fact, I've actually heard pastors saying doctrine divides. The church has been divided for centuries over these doctrines. Let's put them all away. All our doctrinal differences. Let's come together in unity to solve world problems. Okay, Global warming is one they are going after the church now. Ending world hunger, curing AIDS, focusing on environmental issues. You say, come on, what's wrong with that? That's all good stuff, right? I mean, it's a positive message. Don't we want to give the world a positive message? That's appealing to people. Yes, it is. The problem is when Jesus commissioned his church to go into all the world, he didn't say, go into all the world and fix the world's problems. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick. Nothing wrong with that. That's just not our mission. Now, we do some of that stuff in the process of sharing what he told us to do, which is to go into all the world, preach the gospel to everybody, teaching them, I'll paraphrase, sound doctrine. Everything I have commanded you, you go ahead and teach them. And while you're sharing the gospel and helping people come to know me, if they have a physical need and you can meet that need, you do it. But that isn't our primary mission. I mean, there are well-meaning pastors who have turned the mission of the church into a purely social gospel message. Let me just say this to you. The devil loves it when churches stop teaching the word of God and focus on social issues because they think they're making a difference. If we go out there and show them how to plant and we dig wells for them and we build schools for them, noble causes, but if that's all you do, you launch them into a Christless eternity. What difference does it make if they have full stomachs, they have plenty of good, clean drinking water in schools to learn what the world's wisdom? If you don't give them the gospel, you're not helping them. We are not a social agency. Let the Red Cross deal with that. We are a spiritual entity. And we have been commissioned by our Lord to go into the world and to preach the same message he came to preach. He said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost, not hungry, naked, and so on. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. That's our mission. And today, you know, we have churches that are just focusing all on social issues. Or churches that teach or present nothing but positive, feel-good messages that never offend anybody. Tolerant of everybody and practically everything under the sun, except the truth of God. Okay? It's amazing how many churches are tolerant of gay marriage and abortion and other things like that. But when you try to show them from the word of God, what God has to say, oh, very intolerant now. I'll give you one more quickly. One more spiritual leaven. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. And just read verse 6 with me. Where Paul says, your glorying or your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And the context was, there was a guy in Corinth living with his own stepmother openly and unashamedly. Everyone knew about it. The church knew about it. The community knew about it. Knew he was a Christian. He's living with his own stepmother. 
And the church was not doing anything about it. In fact, not only were they not dealing with the sin, they were actually boasting about how spiritual they were. Why? Because in verse 2, Paul tells us that God had seen fit to give this church all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so the church came to think of themselves as super spiritual. Look at how spiritual we are. God must really, wow, look at us. We've got all the gifts of the Spirit. Are we spiritual? Paul said, you kidding me? If you're so spiritual, you'll deal with that guy living with his stepmother. Part of the problem, I think, was the reason they didn't deal with it is because they wanted to be tolerant and very non-judgmental. So a lot of churches don't deal with sin because it builds their ego, their pride, that, you know what, we don't judge people, okay? We don't judge people. We just love them. Well, if you really love them, you tell them the truth. If you really love them, you wouldn't want them to go on in their sin because they're going to hell. Look, the most loving thing you can do for a person is give them the truth. And make sure you do it in love. But give them the truth. Paul goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, (laughs) since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And the image here is that Jesus Christ is our Passover. In the sense that in the Old Testament, the first Passover, God had them kill the uh, lambs, take the blood and put it on the doorpost and lentil of their houses. And when they did that, the angel of death passed over. Judgment did not come to that house. Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, when he died, those of us who by faith have applied his blood to our lives, not our houses, but our hearts, means that now the judgment of God is going to pass over us so we will not come into judgment. But here's the thing Paul goes on to say. He then moves from Passover to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now Passover spoke of redemption, how the blood of Christ redeemed us out of the bondage of sin and death. If Passover spoke of redemption, the Feast of Unleavened Bread spoke of sanctification. And you have to understand how it worked. The Feast of Passover fell on the 14th of Nisan. Starting on the 15th and running seven consecutive days was the Feast of Unleavened Bread a time when they purged all leaven out of their houses. In other words, their homes were now holy places. And here's the idea. When you get saved by applying the blood of the Lamb to your life, redemption, you are to immediately begin to live a new kind of life, a holy life, a sanctified life. And the Bible 7 is the number of completeness. It's to be a completely holy life. Not a little bit here, a little bit there. And by the way, those people who think that because I've accepted Christ, but sometime down the road I get serious about being holy and I'm still going to live with my boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, that's not how it worked. There was no gap between Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just as when you accept Christ, there is no gap between that point and then living a holy life. God wants you to start immediately living a new life, an unleavened life. Look, and we're done. Let me just close with this. Any immorality or evil that enters a church and isn't dealt with is going to spread through the congregation like leaven spreads through dough or like even cancer spreads through a human body and will corrupt the whole church. Materialism, legalism, hypocrisy, false doctrine, evil and immorality, any sin. He talked about malice. He talked about wickedness. All of these are considered spiritual leaven and they will permeate through our lives if not dealt with and they will corrupt our walk with God and corrupt all the good things God wants to do in and through us. In essence, they do the very thing Paul warned us against in Ephesians. They give place to the devil. 
See, that's who introduces the leaven into our lives. It's the devil. We accept it. You know, we receive it. But the devil is pushing the evil. He's pushing the sin. Why? Because he knows if you can accept a little sin, a little compromise, if you accept it and don't deal with it, it's going to permeate through your life. It's going to give him... See, remember that little starter piece? didn't take much to leaven an entire lump of dough the next day. doesn't take much sin, much compromise, much carnality, if not dealt with, to give the devil a foothold, a beachhead, from which... And he's never satisfied when he gets a foothold. That's always his way of gaining more territory. That's the insidious nature of leaven. It never stays static. It permeates, just like sin. We don't realize that when we sin against God, even in the small areas of our life, we are giving the devil the authority to take control of that one area. And he will then use it to try to take control of other areas. That's how Christians, after a while, starting with a little compromise, you know, a few years down the road, they're so far from God they can't understand what happened. It's because that little compromise spread. started with something small. I had a pastor say one time at a pastor's conference, he got hurt, he had to step out of the pulpit for a while, started getting into TV, back into some of the secular music. He said, it messed me up. It messed me up. At the time, I didn't think much of it, just a little bit. TV, a little secular music. He said, it began to permeate into my thinking. It began to corrupt my entire walk with God. I began to get more worldly thinking farther away from God. This is how it works. This is why, you know, and we read, we don't really read this section. That's why I want to camp on it this morning. You know what? We glance over it quickly so we can read about how Peter was the first pope, which we'll talk about next time. I'm kidding, of course. But we'll see what some have made Peter. But we could just gloss over this, don't we? Leaven, okay, leaven. Yeah, leaven. I don't even know what it is, but fine. I'll stay away from that. Leaven. This is what it is. This is why it is so dangerous. Because it, it takes place, it takes a place in our heart from which the devil can use then to control us in greater and greater ways. So beware, take heed and beware of leaven. Because it will rob you of the joy of God. It will corrupt a heart that is pure, has good motives, and will just keep you away from God. That's why the Bible says, Above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. Keep your hearts pure. How? Stay close to Jesus. Stay in the Word. Don't deviate from the Word of God. Don't you know, listen to people that have new doctrines or seeing new things in the Word. Stick to the Word of God. As Christians have understood it for centuries, just stick with it, embrace it, and God will keep your heart pure and unleavened that you might serve Him. Father, We just praise you, Lord, that you have warned us about these things, that your word is the antidote for false doctrine. Your word is sound doctrine. And, Lord, we must walk in it, feed on it, if we're going to remain pure, unleavened, undefiled. And, Lord, forgive us for ever thinking that we can embrace a little compromise, a little carnality, because that doesn't really matter when little compromises will permeate and become major compromise down the road. Give us grace, Lord, to be holy, that our lives will be truly unleavened, pure, consecrated to you for your glory. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.